Yeah. And now we're looking good. Okay, so welcome everybody. Back to this uh, class on 1 Corinthians. And we're going to talk, continue to talk about Paul and a wide variety of things. Um, it's just a letter that takes you into a lot of different discussions and topics and all that is great because the way I do these classes, we're not in any hurry, right? There's no schedule. I'm not going anywhere that I know of, right? So I think we're doing, what? Yeah, there'll be one, one, maybe a couple Tuesdays in August we won't meet, but because I'm actually going to take some vacation. But yeah, so let's see. I may bump it. I don't even have a notch to bump up the volume in here. So this is it. Okay. Um, thank you, Charlotte. I don't really think I have anything else in the way of announcements, so I'm going to ask you all to pray with me. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here. We're gathered in person. We're gathered online. Regardless, it is you who have called us to this fellowship. It is you who is the center of our lives. Whether we know it, whether we acknowledge it or not, you must be. And we are grateful that we can come together, take this relatively small amount of time out of our week to study your word, to enjoy this fellowship, to see one another, to see our friends, to make new friends, and we just pray your many blessings upon us um, today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so. I'm just checking that darn podcast recording one more time since I messed it up last week. So we are going to begin at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We got a few verses into it last week, but we'll go back and start at verse, at verse 1. And when Patty and I were talking about these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, it struck us both, you know, that Paul seems pretty hard on them sometimes, right? And I don't think that is because of Paul's personality. He is a driven person. He is a type A++. Um, he has a lot of intellect. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think for Paul, he takes this very seriously. It's not a game. It's not a pastime. Um, coming to... To, to know Christ and coming to understand what God has accomplished in this world in and through Jesus for us and everyone is very serious. And I think he's distressed that in Corinth there are people who really don't seem very open to understanding what God has done for them. And there are a lot of things that Christians can disagree about. And we remain brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a long list. My favorite is between Methodist and Baptist, infants baptized or not. Intramural, intramural discussion. But there are some things that really define what it means to be a Christian. One of those is affirming your confidence that Jesus was actually resurrected. 
Another one is affirming your confidence that one day you will be resurrected just as Jesus was. Both of those in the, are in the Apostles' Creed, which is built from a set of baptismal questions that go back to Rome to at least the year 200 AD and maybe before. So they're very, very, very old. From the beginning, those are two affirmations that all Christians have made, are making, will make. And the Corinthians aren't getting this right. And so Paul takes it very seriously. Of course he does. Of course he does. In addition, there are evidently a lot of, there's a lot of division. And, and they aren't coming to any sort of unity in Christ. And for Paul, that is evidence that perhaps some of them, at least, haven't really embraced Jesus because they, they, you know, you might ask them, they might say to Paul, well, Paul, yes, yes, I, I, you know, I love Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit's in me. And Paul will, would say to them in these first two chapters, well, what's the evidence of that? What, what can I see that shows me that's, that's so? And he takes the division in the church as evidence that there are deep problems, right? Because in Paul's view, they should be ready to embrace unity together and not fall so quickly into little cliques around Apollos or Paul or Peter or, or whomever. And so when we come to chapter 3, he is going to talk to them in such a way that he reminds them that they are just beginners. Just, just beginners at this. And they, they need to understand that they're just beginners. And Paul has much more in line to, for them, but they need to understand they're beginners and sort of get their, sort of get their act together. Um, just thought just occurred to me, well, I used to, uh, I was an Air Force pilot and I taught people um, how to fly jet airplanes. And you would occasionally have a student who was overly confident about themselves. And they wouldn't really grasp what they didn't know. And that we knew that was always a dangerous thing. And so you would find ways in, to remind them, sometimes find ways in the air to remind them. Um, <laughs> there was one student who we, we did get back and I, I, I told him, I'm never flying with you again. So maybe that shook him up. I don't know, but I, I didn't fly with him again. <laughs> I didn't fly with him again. And uh, it's just, I think we live in a world which doesn't want to take religion very seriously. It wants to make it just this private little thing that we have between us and our feelings about this and that. And, that's not what Paul is doing. For Paul, this is a proclamation for the entire world. And he's going around the Mediterranean, Mediterranean founding these colonies of a new, new human race, reborn in Christ. Reborn in Christ. And it is, it, is, it is God's work. It is the way that God is reconciling all of humanity to God to repairing what went terribly wrong in the human rebellion against God. So 
I think we need to um, let Paul take it seriously and not be put off by it, but even embrace it. Yes. Well, Casey, that's, that's so interesting. So let me just work with that for a second. Jim is saying when he was a kid, what they read had was the New King James Bible. The first Bible I ever really read on my own was the little tiny New Testament that the military were given. There was one of those around the house. It was the New King James. And of course, if you remember, the, the not the New King James, just the King James. So the King James Bible. And not only did the was it hard to understand because it, the language was 400 years old. It, there weren't paragraphs. It was just verse after verse after verse after verse. And um, it was hard to get a lot out of it. And there's a long period of Christian history where people didn't really read the Bible at all. It was read for them by the priests and they would interpret and tell the people what was in it and so forth. But more modern translations such as we have are, a, are an enormous help. Remember, every translation is just only that. It's one translation. It's one way to do it. Patty was so excited earlier, she was showing me all these translations that she has in her U version of the Bible on her, and she can switch back and forth. That's very helpful because no, tran no English translation of the Greek New Testament is right. If you know, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's, they're not right. They're all attempts to render in English um, what Paul wrote in the Greek. And of course, as Jim noted, the Greek would be difficult for the people of Paul's day because there were many who couldn't read it, so it was done orally. Somebody would show up. I've heard it described this way, you know, they'd gather in the evening because everybody had worked all day. So you'd have 20 people in a, in a room and somebody would stand up to read Paul's letter to the Romans, right? And I don't know about you, but if I read Romans in the... It, I'm, there's a lot of stuff in there that's pretty hard to get, right? It could take a lifetime of study you could devote to the letter to the Romans. So what does that mean? Well, that means as soon as that person finished, there's going to be a, a jillion questions, right? For that person to try to wrestle with an answer. So who was doing it was important. It's one of the striking things about the letter of the Romans is that Paul sends it with guess what? Guess who? A woman. A woman named Phoebe is the carrier of the letter to the Romans, which means what? Phoebe is coming from Paul, and Phoebe would be the one to get all those questions. Paul trusted her with it, not him with it, her with it. So, so yeah, so we, we're, we're blessed to live in a time when we have a lot of translations, we have some paraphrases, the message is perfectly good, it shouldn't be your primary Bible. Eugene Peterson wouldn't tell you to use it as your primary Bible, but it's so refreshing to read this one person's 
paraphrase, much better than the Living Bible, because Eugene Peterson was well-schooled in Hebrew and Greek. So, also, before I forget, there are munchies on the back table that Sarah brought. Right, Sarah? Vegetables and dip. They're healthy. Okay. They're healthy. So thank you, Sarah, for that. You know, people tell me to say things at the beginning of class, and sometimes I just forget. My brain is... Yeah, there we go. There we go. Okay. Anything else before we, we plunge back into <laughs> 1 Corinthians? Okay. And so the red box is, has started around. It was suggested to me maybe sensibly, that we only use one box, that it gets confusing having two. So there's one box, just run it around the whole room for me. Wow, you guys are good. Pandemic or no pandemic, you fall right back into the habit of the red boxes, huh? So look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He doesn't say to them actually, does he, that they're not in Christ. They're just mere infants and they're stuck in that infancy. Like that song I told you to go check out over the week. Fat Baby. Anybody listen to Fat Baby? Okay, did you like it, Rich? Marvelous, he says. I'm not sure he liked it, but anyway, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Oh, you didn't like it. Nah. Ah. Amy Grant was way too young for you. Anyway, yeah. So, um, but the but but <laughs> but the idea is that so he doesn't say to them, "You're not actually in Christ." He just says, "You're infants in Christ," and he is disappointed in them. That's okay. He's, um, to, to put up this slide again, he's just saying, you're stuck here. You need to be moving. A way to think about it is you need to be moving from less to more. That's true of all of us in our Christian life. We need to be moving from less to more. Right? To to. to, to more kindness, more compassion, more understanding, more commitment, more service, more worship, more of all the things that make us Christ-like. Christ-like, that's such an important word because it's not, it's, I, I've, I know people are sometimes put off by it, but you can't be put off by it. If you find yourself being put off by it, Fight it, because it is the right way to think about it. We are to live, remember that we talked a, um, a couple weeks ago about the word cruciform, living cruciform lives, lives shaped by the cross, by the sacrifice and the cross. Cruciform lives are, lead us to being ever more Christ-like. And Paul wants that for these new, new Christians to not remain mere infants in Christ, but to grow. And if you find it difficult or challenging, because we live in a world that often makes it difficult and challenging, 
all you can do is press on and try harder. Put some effort in. You know, if you're a person who comes to, I'm not, I'm speaking of the choir here, I realize, but if you're a person who comes to church once in a while, stop that. Come, come as often as you possibly can. Not just once in a while. As often as you possibly can. There's just, you know, if you're away and you can listen online or watch online, just do it. Just form these habits. Um, building the right kind of habits is how you move from less to more. So he says to them that they are mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. They're stuck. As far as he can tell, they're just stuck. He went there, he founded this, this, this community, people were attracted to it, as maybe the right word, they, were, they came together and Paul stayed there um, for a good while. We know from the book of Acts that Paul spent 18 months there in Acts 18. 18 months! So he knows these people. He, he, he wasn't sort of in and out the door, you know, in and out of the town like he was in other places. No, in this place, he's stuck. 18 months. And so, sure, maybe that means he's especially disappointed. And so he says to them in verse 3, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? You seem happy to embrace the things of this age rather than pointing yourself toward the age to come, pointing yourself toward the kingdom of God, striving to live in the kingdom of God every single day. You're just perfectly happy to be stuck, stuck where you are. Are you not acting like mere humans? Right? So what's that about? Key piece of Paul's theology, God's theology, Jesus' theology, is that when you come to faith in Christ, as all of these people have supposedly done, you are reborn. That's why I said a few minutes ago, it's not original to me, I think it's original to N.T. Wright, that Paul is founding colonies of a new human race. A human race empowered by the Spirit, not by the things of this world, by the Holy Spirit, not by the things of this, this world. And, and for him that is concrete, that's, that's not... That's, just, that's not just a feeling or an experience you might have had. It's as concrete as any other concrete statement you would make, such as, gosh, I guess the one I used yesterday in my class on Isaiah was, we are on the third planet from the sun. Okay, that's just it. That's how it is. We're not the fourth, not the eighth, we're the third. This is the same thing for Paul. And so he says, you're stuck down here and you're acting like you haven't been reborn. 
Elsewhere, he will almost take, in my mind, I see him grabbing people by the lapels and saying, remember, you were given God's spirit. Will you just act that way? Because they're not. Are you not acting like mere humans? Now, again, he doesn't say that they're just mere humans. He's not denying their faith. He's just saying you're stuck. You're stuck in your old ways, in your old life, in the old things you used to value, and all of this, and you are making no progress on becoming an ever truer disciple of Jesus. For and his illustration, this is this says this tells me this is so. Verse 4. For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Because that does not characterize the family of Christ, in which we are to be unified. Whom do we follow? Christ. All of us do. None of us think we have a lock on Jesus either. Thinking that somehow makes you better than everybody else. No. Christ is to be the center of us all and following the divisions of Paul and Apollos and the rest, Peter and the rest of them are not, for Paul that just has, that has no way. So, would Paul be disappointed in the denominational conflicts that we have? Yes, he would be, I think. I think he would say that is evidence of our too much being willing to be stuck. Be stuck. Because um, Paul has a lot to say about unity. And what kind of unity, you know, this is a particular expression of disunity that he's talking about here, that they have different, because different evangelists that have come, and now some of them are following, say, I'm, a, I'm an Apollos person, or I'm a Paul person, or I'm a Peter person. But another way that disunity is expressed is between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Paul is always pushing them toward unity in Christ as well. The Jews who have come to Christ and the Gentiles who have come to Christ. That's kind of what the letter to the Romans is about. A lot of it's about that unity. So for Paul, we are to be unified. Why are we to be unified? Because we're a family. We are, you are my brothers and sisters. Truly, in this new human race, we're not a club. We're not an association. We're not a school. We're not a nonprofit. We're not a business. We are a family, brothers and sisters. And it's so tempting to not see the church that way, and so tempting to begin to see church as, you know, and use business language or and stuff. It's deadly. Deadly. Yes. Sure. What do you think? Do you think Peter would would agree with Paul on this that we are to be unified? I don't remember reading anything. In 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. He draws on the Old Testament. Show off. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite passages. He's just he's just quoting the Old Testament. 
and he talks to the people. You are one people. You are a holy nation, a chosen race, called by God out of the darkness into the light so that you may proclaim the mighty wonders of the one who has saved you. That's my paraphrase. Yes, one, 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 one. And who began this rebirth stuff? Is that Paul? No, that's Jesus. Nicodemus, John 3. It's Jesus who says to Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born again if you're going to understand this. Or could be translated born from above, could be translated born a second time, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. Well, I mean, I mean, okay, so that could be take. For 1,500 years in the West, there was only one church, and the head of it was in Rome. It was only with the Reformation that the Western church began to be split up into other denominations. So for the Roman, I, I could rephrase that and say, really, if you're raising your kids, you really try, need to raise your kids in a Christian household and raise them to be Christians and not use a title like Roman Catholic. But if you went to 1300 AD, everybody in the West was Roman Catholic. If they were anything, they would all say, if you asked them, are you, know, are you Christian? They would all say yes. And the head papa was the bishop in Rome, the Pope, even when there were two of them. And there were periods when there were two popes at the same time, but I'm not going to, let's not chase that, that rabbit. So just, just think of this simply. We're a family. This is something I, I kid Charles Harbison about because he, he's Baptist. I used to kid Barbara Staff about it because she's, she was Baptist. And, you know, I grew up Episcopalian. I thought it was pretty odd that my Baptist friends, at least their parents, would often call each other brother and sister. But now I get it. I'm not saying we have to start other than maybe once in a while. I might call you Sister Charlotte once in a while. Because just to remind us that we are a family. Because the world does not want us to think that way. And we, our brain is filled with other stuff all the time. So, verse 5. Paul goes on, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're both evangelists. They're both bringers of the good news. You meet Apollos in the book of Acts. So we, we know something about him. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants. Now the word here is not the typical word that is sometimes um, should be translated slaves, doulos. It's a different word. It's one like a, a waiter at a table. Right? So if you go to a restaurant, if you go to Gloria's, as a matter of fact, <laughs> right? Right? Um, there's a person who serves you, right? Who is, brings you the food and stuff. But who cooks it? Does the waiter cook the food? You're going to hold the waiter responsible for the food? Who cooks the food? Yeah, don't make this complicated. This is actually easy. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, you came to have faith as the Lord has assigned to each his task. That task, assignment, that's all about the teachers. It's about Apollos and Paul. 
God has given Apollos a task, God has given Paul a task, they are the ones who, who, who bring the word, who preach it. What did Paul say in, in the first and second chapters? He preaches Christ and him crucified. That's what he does. Would you ever, you can look high and low and you will never find in Paul the statement that I'm saving souls here. That's not Paul's job. He's not even capable of it. His job is to preach the word. Um, because there's a passage in Romans 10, you know, if there must be someone who was sent because there isn't someone who was sent, then there won't be anyone to proclaim and to preach. And if there's none of that, then how can anybody come to faith, right? There's this work to be done that Paul is doing and Apollos is doing, and guess what? There are others doing it. The book of Acts and the New Testament tell us some of the story of how Christianity is spreading, but not the whole story, just some of the story. Enough of the story. God gave us enough of the story so that we would understand the larger story, but Christianity is spreading to other places. Um, Paul himself never went to Rome. Yet we know, pretty sure, that there were, actually quite sure, that there were Christians in Rome before 50 AD, before Peter ever went there. Because we know that there Priscilla and Aquila and others were kicked out of Rome in 49 AD by the emperor. So it's happening, it's spreading, it's, it's moving. And, and Paul is the exemplar of how it's happening. His story is. And his letters are, you know, full of the inspired intellectual content of the meaning and significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. So he says, what after all is Paulos and what's Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe, through whom you came to faith, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. That's what we do. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Yes, I brought Patty her fajitas, but it was the cook who prepared it. That's the idea. Paul is just planting, he's just watering but it's God who makes it grow. Because Paul, you know, for ancient people and certainly for me in 2021, somehow there's a miracle when you take a little bitty seed and you put it in dirt and you water it and it grows into something magnificent. How does that happen? Beats me, I don't know how. Paul doesn't know how. All he knows is you plant the seed, you water it, and it grows. They're just, they're just servants in this. That's all they are. Don't make Paul out to be something he isn't. Paul's an apostle. His words are inspired. They were taken by the Christian community as saying, this, these are true. This is the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is how God is reconciling humanity to God. But he's still just Paul, right? Given a task by God, 
as we are all given tasks by God. So he goes on in verse 7, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He is putting himself and Apollos in the right perspective. He preaches Christ crucified, but the one who makes anything come out of that preaching of Christ crucified is God, not Paul. Okay? The one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You, he says, you, the Corinthians, you, the people in this room, you, St. Andrew, you Christians across the globe, you are God's field, you are God's building. And so he takes the spotlight off himself, which is probably what's happened, right? People have been too caught up in a personality cult, and he takes that spotlight and he shines it upon whom? God. God, not himself. That is the one among many fatal flaws of celebrity preachers, which American Christianity has been dealing with for 20 or 30 years now. It's, it's one huge danger of that is that the focus becomes on the preacher rather than upon God. And that's, it's deadly. And it's bearing all sorts of rotten fruit around the United States if you keep up with this sort of thing at all. And many, many poor witnesses to Christ around the country because we can't bear that load. That's the thing, you see. We can't bear a load that is God's load. All I can do is teach the Bible. I try to teach the Bible and help open it up for people. If I thought my job was to save somebody's soul, I would crack under the pressure because I don't know a clue how I would do that. That's God's work. All I can do is you know, try to open up the Bible for people and talk with them about it and help them, help them hear Paul a little bit better or hear Jesus a little bit better in John's Gospel or hear Isaiah a little bit better. That's it. I refuse to take on, you know, any other great, great and abiding purpose that we humans are drawn to because we're, we're not equipped for it. We're, we are human and not divine. So, okay, well I said a lot right there. Anybody want to ask any questions? Got anything to add? Yes, Mona. Uh, my study Bible has something I thought was a good way to think about it. Paul's work was of a pioneer nature, preaching where no other had preached before. Apollo's work was in established churches, teaching and encouraging the converts of Okay, so the study in the Bible you have has Paul being the pioneer going out finding communities and they're inferring a little bit about Paulos that I'm not sure I would totally buy. That Paul only went to established churches. I don't know why they would say that. Right? Actually, when I, if I remember what I know of, Paul, of Apollos and Acts 18 and stuff, that seems a little bit... There weren't really many established churches. That's the thing, right? Almost any place these 
people would go was a new place. And we do, yes, we do meet Apollos who has come to Corinth and Paul's already been there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Paulus didn't go somewhere else. The point is, it's all really pioneering, right? Because they're all founding and, and nurturing these, I like the phrase, these colonies of a new human race, right? We at St. Andrew are a colony of this new human race. Um, okay. That was great. Thank you, Mona. Anybody else? Verse 10. Now, so he's going to go on about this work. The work of what? What kind of work is he talking about? Well, building churches. Helping the body of Christ to grow. Building churches. He says, by the grace of, by the, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Paul's been doing this. He feels like he knows how to do it. Um, yeah, to me, it'd be a little bit like sitting down and having a conversation with Robert Hasley about starting a new church. Right? How do I do this, Robert? I would think he would have a lot to tell you about the wise way to start a new church and some of the mistakes to avoid. So he says, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. Might be Apollos. He's one. Could be others. But each one should build with care. With care. This is serious. Nothing slapdash about it. Slapdash. My, kids, my son's eyes would be rolling in the back of their heads. That is such an old man word, they would tell me. Right, Patty? Yes, yes they would. But yeah, it's a good word. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, so Paul, as he's riding along or dictating, he says, I, I took care, I got this, I, I did this right. I started this, these house communities in a wise way. The, 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 the true foundation of this of, is, of course, Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, notice there are six of them, we'll come back to them in a minute, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day. Now, the day. What does your translation say there, Patty? The day, you have another, you can bounce around eight translations at one time. Might be the Lord's day. What he's talking about is when the day of judgment comes. Um, for these new Christians, it is this day. It is the day when the age, the old age is swept away completely and, and the kingdom of God is manifest for all to see. And judgment is rendered. And Jesus has returned. And we are all resurrected. All that's part of the same big gift-wrapped box, if you want to think about it that way. Because the day will bring it to light. Meaning that, yes, you know, if you, if you try to build the church in a slapdash manner, 
God will see it. It will come to light. Your work will come to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Because that's what fire does, right? Fire burns away impurities and stuff. I, used to, I discovered that in practice when I tried to help my son make a Pinewood Derby car. <laughs> and we were, we were melting lead and things to weight it down. And the, you know what the greatest challenge for a father at Pinewood Derby time? Getting a car to go down the hill. No, that's easy. Not doing it all yourself. That's the big challenge for a dad at Pinewood Derby time. So, now, fire. Very standard, biblical. We could pull up passage after passage where fire is, is purifying, right? So look back up above in verse 12. You'll see, go back to the six. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Gold, silver, costly stones, those won't burn reasonably, <laughs> right? Wood, hay, or straw, they go up in smoke. So what Paul is saying to them is that how you build matters. This matters. You need to take care. You need to strive to get this right. You can't treat this cavalierly. Um, For the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. In what context, you see, building, building the church. That's the context in this paragraph. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, if you built with straw instead of costly stones, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Okay? Even though only as one escaping through the flames. So, that verse 15 has been munched on a long time by many different people. What exactly does Paul mean? The context of it is not, the context of the paragraph is not everybody's individual salvation and all that kind of stuff. The context of the paragraph is about the building of the church. That's what he's focused on. How these people are going to, to, to take the work that Paul laid down and the work that Apollos laid down and maybe others and, and build them out and build them forward with, with care. Um, and saying it matters if you built with if you built with care you're going to be rewarded but if you took the easy way out all the time you just hit remember that have you ever seen an easy button Boop. no i'll bring one no i won't staples has easy buttons <laughs> if you build with straw or wood um yeah you're going to stand to account for it, but you will be saved, right? So, so I, I, I've read several commentators this week on this, and some see less or more here in regards to individual 
salvation or what it might or might not say. All agree this is not the basis for anybody to talk about purgatory or anything else. Paul's focus is simple. When you're doing the work of the church, do it with care. I think, that, I think one of the wonderful things about St. Andrew is I think people generally do that here. I, I really do. I don't, we, we, we don't tend to do things in a slapdash you know, manner. People have asked me, well, Scott, what's happening in the Methodist Church and all this stuff, you know, and my response is a simple one at this point. You know, the church is probably going to splinter, the UMC, and there will be yet more denominations, I guess, when it's all said and done, like we don't have enough already, but there will probably be more denominations. We are committed to remaining St. Andrew with the values and the reference that we have had for 35 years now. And we have really, really good committees of lay people, um, trustees, staff parish, that are taking a very deliberate, careful process to work through and look at all the different ways this might play out and what all of our options are. But the driving, the driving value for Robert, Arthur, and the rest of us is that we will remain the St. Andrew that we've all grown to love. I think that would all make, he would be, Paul would be disappointed by the splintering, but I think he would want us to do all that we could to remain the St. Andrew family that we've had here for 35 years. Okay, so any thoughts or questions about that? Scott? Yes, Patty. I had to look up the verse because I honestly couldn't remember it, but this sounded so much to me like Jesus' words in the parable about building the house on the rock. Yes. And anything else is going to wash away. It is. It's much, yeah. So Patty's reminding us of the parable that close. Let me expand on this for a second. Okay, in in Matthew's gospel, there are three chapters, five, six, and seven, devoted to the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection. What Matthew does is he takes Jesus's teachings and he collects them all together in just one place. So if you have a red letter Bible, there's lots and lots of red letter, right, red print right there. The very last thing in the Sermon on the Mount is a parable about two people who are going to build. And they're going to build in what's called a wadi in the Mideast. It's a wash. And if you grew up in the desert, if you grew up in the desert, you know what a wash is. There are these gullies that are dry most of the year until the rains came. And then they can wash away cars, buildings, homes, and the rest of it. When I was in Phoenix, I lived in Phoenix for four years, and I moved down there, and you'd have these places where the road would like dip, and down at the bottom there would be a depth gauge, a big yardstick or 10-foot stick or whatever, so you could measure and see the depth. I thought, how odd, until the rains came, <laughs> and all those were filled with water. So, so one person builds their house on sand, one house builds their house on rock. You can imagine which one survives the arrival of the rains. And Jesus says, he who does, 
who does what I've said, focused on the action, builds her house on rock. And it is. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul is familiar with that parable. He doesn't have any of the Gospels, right? All the Gospels are written after Paul. Could he have other collections of little Jesus sayings and things? Yes. Might he have heard it from somebody? Yes. Might he not have? Yes. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, anything else? Yes. That's a good question. The question is, do I, does, do I think he's surprised by their ongoing immaturity in the faith? I think yes. I think that's part of what drives the letter. He, he was there for 18 months himself, and I think he is surprised by, by their embrace of the world's way of spirituality and the world's way of wisdom and the world's way of knowledge rather than turning from all of that and turning to true wisdom which comes from God. And so yeah I think he probably is surprised and I think you I get some sense of that from the letter I wouldn't be at all surprised if he because what would this surprise create? Disappointment right? It's a, he has a very, and just to expand on that, he has a very difficult relationship with the Corinthian Christians. You don't see it as much in this letter, though somewhat, but in 2 Corinthians you see it. So he has a difficult relationship with them, and we don't really know everything we'd like to know about why that is and all the circumstances, of course, but they're very different than the Philippian Christians, which is up in Macedonia with whom he clearly has a very loving relationship. Right, it's very different. So, thank you for that. Anything else? And I'm, notice I'm trying to repeat the question for the online people. Huh, happens today, might never happen again. <laughs> Don't know. Now, okay. So now I'm going to read to you verse 16, and I want you to listen to how I do this. Don't even look at your Bibles. Don't y'all know <laughs> that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all's midst? Because all of the yous in verse 16 are plural. They are not singular. They're plural. In English, this is confusing for us because first person, second person, singular and second person plural are both Y-O-U. So we create, right, we create means to tell them apart so it will be less confusing. And here in Texas, we tend to say y'all. Wouldn't it be all y'all? All y'all. Could be all y'all. Same idea though. You're really making it clear. I'm not focusing on one person. I'm focusing on everybody. All y'all. In New York, what do they use? Use guys. You could probably go around the hey. You could probably go around the country and find ways that people cope because we just don't have the YOUs can get confusing and they can in scripture. Now in Greek, there's a different word for the singular and the plural. 
So there are little helps that even English readers can use to tell whether the pronoun is singular or plural, and it matters. Because if you come to verse 16 and you read it as singular, you might think Paul is really speaking to you or to one particular person. Don't you, I'm going to use Charlotte, is that okay? Don't you, Charlotte, know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That's not what he's doing. The context for all of this is the church. So consequently, it is, don't y'all know, it's a plural you, that y'all, all y'all, <laughs> y'all yourselves, <laughs> are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst. Y'all, 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 because he's speaking to the community. Now elsewhere, he does it differently. Elsewhere, he speaks of the individual being God's temple, and in that case, the Y-O-U is singular. But he has a different, he's making a different point, because we, indeed God's Spirit dwells in each of us. But God's Spirit also dwells in the church. You know, when we talk about, sure, when we talk about, well, who, who formed this fellowship? Sure, we can say God because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you want to be more exacting, it is the Holy Spirit who calls us here. It is the Holy Spirit who walks with us every day. It is the Holy Spirit who comforts us in times of grief and stress. It is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence with us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is our comforter is our advocate, is our counselor. The Holy Spirit has an advantage over that Jesus didn't have. When Jesus walked the earth, he could still only be in one place at one time because he was bound by a body. That's not true of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in non-believers? No. No. When you are reborn, when you come to faith, here's when you come to faith in Christ, you are reborn and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's why Paul will sometimes say to the Christians, Don't you know that your Holy Spirit dwells in you? Can't you remember that? Now will you act like you know what's so? It's like I said with my mom with Scotty, well, you're fifteen, will you act like it instead of acting like you're eight? So um it's simply part of reality. The reality of the cosmos is that the living spirit of the one true God dwells in those who have come to faith in Christ, who have entrusted themselves to Jesus. Just like we live on the third planet from the sun. So, and the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, in the body of Christ, Paul will call it. The church, the family. Don't y'all know that y'all yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all's midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. 
meaning putting people on notice. This matters. There are books written about church killers. Did you know that? In our world today, their book, I could, their titles are out there. Church killers. These are people who for some, I don't know, personal or demonic reason or whatever, I don't know, they go into a church and they start creating division. And St. Andrew is, can weather all of that. Over the last 20 years, I may have met one or two people in the halls here who I think are, would be perfectly suitable church killers, but, but they can't. We're too big. This is too much, too much of everything here for that to happen. But a small little church of 100 people, they're, they're sadly susceptible to it. And Paul is saying, don't, and, and these are what? These are house churches. They meet in Betty's house down the street. That's what church is. We're going to go down to Betty's house down the street and maybe we'll, you know, share a little meal and we'll talk about Jesus or whatever. Maybe sing a song or something. That's what it is. So they're fragile. St. Andrew isn't really fragile. I hope. St. Andrew isn't really fragile. But these little houses, they're all fragile. So of course Paul is warning. You know, we'll get to a place in this letter where he basically tells somebody in one of these house churches they just have to leave. And he kicks them out. He kicks them out. Why does he kick them out? Because he believes that they threaten the very existence of that house church. I'm with those who think you find in 2 Corinthians Paul inviting that person back in, but you can't be sure if it's the same person. But, but Paul's, Paul's world and his, his pastoring is very different than ours. Um, now, another big point here. The temple. God's temple. That's quite an idea. An idea? That's quite an idea for a Pharisee to have. Remember, Paul is not just Jewish. He is a Pharisee. Pharisee. Meaning what? If nothing else, it means he knows this stuff. Paul knows quite well that the beating heart of Judaism at this time is the temple. The priests. The sacrifices that are made there in order to, to, to keep the people right with God as best they can. The temple is that beating heart. It's the very center of the Jewish religion. And when he's writing this, the temple is still there. The temple won't be destroyed for another, I don't know, maybe 15, 16, 17 years after Paul writes his letter. So the temple is still there. So what, does he, what is he doing when he talks about God's spirit dwelling in these Christian communities? He's recentering God's sacred presence. Some of them are. Some of them are. Some of them are Gentiles. But the point is, but this is Paul's language. You know, he could say the Spirit dwells in you without calling the Christian community 
the temple. But you see, that for Paul understands that the temple had been the place where God's presence had dwelt with them. Right? There's this great moment, big moment in Exodus 40 at the very end where the tabernacle is built and now the presence of God descends upon the tabernacle and fills it and it's filled so full that Moses can't even get in the door. Okay? And so the presence of God dwelt in that tabernacle and then when it's converted to a temple, a, a permanent structure in, in the temple. And as the end of that temple is becoming clearer and clearer, as the Babylonian noose is tightening tighter and tighter, Ezekiel has a vision in Ezekiel 10 of the presence of God going upward out of the temple and heading over to the east, which is where the exiles will go. Because, which makes some sense, because how could the Babylonians destroy a temple if God's presence is in the temple? So maybe God's presence left. That's the meaning of Ezekiel's vision. So when the exiles return from Babylon, many assume that God's Spirit returns with them and resumes habitation in the temple as God had inhabited the temple before. But things are not the same. There is no rightful king. They trade one pagan oppressor after another, after another, after another for a hundred years, two hundred years, three hundred years, four hundred years, five hundred years. Jesus comes, Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and then a couple of weeks later, what happens? The Spirit arrives with great power on Pentecost. We just celebrated Pentecost Sunday. The Spirit arrives on Pentecost, and the flames jump, and the wind blows. And, you know, yeah. So, what is that about? Could it be that, the, that God's Spirit didn't really return to that temple when the exiles returned from Babylon? But that now, with Jesus' death and resurrection, now God's Spirit has indeed returned and made a temple of those of, who have put their faith in Christ made a temple of those who were gathered in, um, gathered in Jerusalem on that, on that Pentecost day and now inhabits the temple that is the body of Christ, that is, that is the church. Um, I think it's pretty clear that that's how Paul sees it because that's, that's the way he talks about it. So the temple, even though the temple of marble is still standing, Right? Rebuilt greatly by King Herod, and there had been a temple of some sorts on that spot for 500 years, rebuilt after the Babylonians destroyed it. Now, all of a sudden, Paul talks about the church being God's temple. This Pharisee talks about the church being God's temple. And I think it's a very Pentecost moment for me, and it is. It is 
It is the way to understand how much newness there is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, when a lot of people, we kind of think that, well, you know, when Jesus is crucified and resurrected, it's all just kind of on the same little line moving somewhere, but it's not. It's this huge break in everything. It is the inbreaking of God in time and space. It is heaven coming to earth. It is cha it changes everything. And now, now God's sacredness is recentered in the people. Does that mean it's recentered in new buildings of marble? What do you think? No. It's not Paul has no vision of this being of 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 the of God's spirit dwelling in any structure that you or I could build. God's Spirit dwells in the people. What is that little thing the kids learn? Open the church and see here, here, here are the people. The focus is on the people. The focus is on the community. The structures are here just to help us. There isn't anything inherently more holy about the sanctuary than Peril Hall or my house. We tend to imbue these things with a sense of sacredness that I don't, I don't think are, that really reflect the New Testament view of what has happened. It is the people. And if all of this were gone tomorrow, the holiness one finds in the St. Andrew family would not be diminished one iota by the loss of the buildings. It would be sad, and we love these buildings, and we use, we use them a lot, and they're wonderful. But, but it, is the it, it is the people of God who bring the holiness to anywhere or anything, not the reverse. Not the reverse. And that would be hard for Jews in the first century to hear. It would be, I think it's hard for Christians sometimes to take in in our world, but it would certainly be hard for the Jews to hear. It would be one of the, I don't know how much he talked about this when he went from place to place, but it would be one of the things I think that would get him stoned by some of his fellow Jews. Okay. So, God, at the end of verse 17, God's temple is sacred, and you together, y'all together, all y'all, <laughs> are that temple. Okay, so any thoughts or questions about that? When I talk about the temple, what I mean is the temple, the building, the whole temple system of the priests and the sacrifices, that is the heart. Now, what would happen when that's destroyed in 70 AD? What, Judaism would have to morph, it would have to evolve. And what it evolves into is the Judaism of the Pharisees. The Judaism of Pharisees is built around Torah, and the, and, and the study of Torah, right? And, and so that's what Judaism becomes, but it's because of the loss of the temple. 
right? Because in the temple system, those sacrifices were what enabled the people to exist in God's presence, right? So, so um, I certainly lived most of my life and never even knew that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed or had any sense of the meaning of it or anything like that. And I went listened to a lot of sermons in my lifetime, I have to tell you. Kind of stuff never came up. But it's a huge, a huge event, um, especially for the Jewish religion. It has to be reinvented. Because well, none of our Jewish friends go to places where they're sacrificing animals and they're a pre, all that's gone. And over 2,000 years, the Judaism has been, has been rebuilt. Um, really, I think, grounded in Pharisaic Judaism, the Judaism of the Pharisees, in Jesus' day. Um, to where we have one, one, one little bit from the rabbis, um, maybe 100 years after the temple was destroyed, was that, where two or three gathered together to study Torah, there God is. You see, because they've had to replace what they've lost. The temple was where God was, but now it is where two or three come together to study Torah. Well, that's where God is. So, anyway. Where was the place where only so certain priests could go into and had chosen and... The temple, the temple worked like concentric rings, and it get, they get they get more restrictive. You know, um, there you sort of Gentiles can be out here who are interested, but then only Jews. Then the women are cut out. Then non-priestly men are cut out, leaving you the priests, and then finally leaving the high priest who goes into the back room behind the curtain one day a year to offer up atonement, it's Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur atonement for the sins of Israel and pronounces God's name in the midst of those prayers. It was the only time in the course of the year that God's name was pronounced. But that's all destroyed by the Romans 15 years after this letter is written. How could such a thing happen, you might ask, if you were a Jew? Well, what happened was, God's Spirit never really reoccupied that. Instead, God's Spirit returned on Pentecost to the temple that is God's people, that is the people who come to, who, they're the Jesus folk, because it is Jesus in whom, in whom God's salvation rests. But the Jews didn't believe that. Well, yeah, they didn't. So, there's lots of people who don't believe it. So Some did. Paul's a Jew. So are, is it sad that there are Jews who rejected their own Messiah? Yes. But then so if the Jews didn't believe that, then where did they think God went since he left the temple? Well, many Jews thought God had returned into the temple. But after 500 years, Many were wondering, where is God? Would God's promises never be kept? It's been five, you know, it's 500 years ago that Columbus discovered America. 500 years. 
and now the dang Romans are in charge and they're standing up with their dang spears watching us just show up for Passover at our temple. The picture was really, really wrong. What's wrong with the picture? God's big thing was about to happen in their midst and most of them sadly would miss it and that big thing is Jesus. That their Messiah would arrive just not the way that they thought. So, okay. So that, that was a good play. I wanted to end at verse 17 anyway because he now kind of switches just a little bit in verse 18. So when we come together next week, we will pick up there at verse 18. And he's going to talk more about wise people and fools. <laughs> All right. So, Patty, do you have anything that you would like to add or you want me to add? Okay, I'm going to close this in prayer. I have a couple of... Um, oh, man. I got a whole slew of anniversaries here. Um, the Kurs are 54th, the Lawlers 51st, the Addisons 52nd. Both Jan and Gary Brooks have tested negative now, yes, I think, right? Um, Linda Rivera wants us to keep in prayer her Uncle Al, who watches all of these from Las Vegas, um, because he went in for a knee replacement and has had a lot of complications afterwards, and septic problems and the rest so we need to keep Al and he's he's been here before he's come to these classes um, but um, when he's been visiting the Linda and Larry but keep him in your prayers so with all of that you know we do we are God's people and the Holy Spirit dwells with us dwells in our midst and it is to God that we come in prayer so would you pray with me Gracious Lord, we are um, grateful to have had this opportunity to talk about your word and, and to try to hear Paul well. And we pray as we leave here that you would impress upon each of us the, the need to, to, to strive to grow, to strive for more, not settle for less, to be more like Jesus in our kindness and our compassion in our helpfulness toward others, in our willingness to put the interests of others ahead of our own, all of those are what it means to love others and help us to, to, to live out that love, to show that love, not only to the people in our who are family and friends, but even to the really difficult people in our lives, to the, even to the enemies we might have. For that is what you taught us, Jesus. Help us to hear well. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.